Well, good morning. Oh, am I on there? Good morning and Happy New Year. Um, as Matt uh, just introduced me, my name is Casey. And um, if we haven't had the pleasure of meeting before, you may know me by association. My son, Asher, is the two-foot-tall version of Adam Levine, the lead singer of Maroon 5. <laughs> He's got the hipster haircut, the skinny jeans. Um, I'm his daddy, and um, my godly and beautiful wife, uh, Katie, is his mama. And we are covenant members here, and as Matt just explained, uh, I am training for the pastorate, and uh, I am a graduate of Liberty University uh, and a student of Heidelberg Theological Seminary. And it is my joy and privilege and honor to preach the very Word of God this morning. Um, if this is your first time here at Liberty, I just want to extend a welcome to you. Um, I hope that you feel welcome, and I want you to know that I am glad that you are here with us this morning. Um, as Matt just explained, because this is the first Sunday and the first day in the new year, I have the dual privilege of kicking off two things for the month of January and the year 2017. So that is the series on parables that he just referred to and uh, an emphasis on the month of January where we put an emphasis and focus on ministries of mercy and justice. So as a fitting overlap between those two things, um, Matt has chosen Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan as our text for this morning's exposition. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please feel free to use the black hardcover Bibles on the seat next to you. Um, and in those Bibles, our passage can be found on page 869. Like most of you, probably most of you, I grew up in a Christian home um, with parents who were faithful and diligent to raise me in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I grew up with a solid understanding of the gospel, and that being we are saved by God's grace from his eternal damnation through faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Not only did I grow up with a, a right understanding of the gospel, but I also grew up with a heart for ministries of mercy and justice. And I grew up that way because my parents were very intentional about instilling and cultivating compassion within me. And so they would do things like on Thanksgiving morning, they would have our family go down to a soup kitchen and feed Thanksgiving dinner to homeless people. They did other things like as a high school student, they encouraged me and sort of pushed me to volunteer lots of my time at a homeless shelter. Um, also during that time of those high school age years, um, they were also influential in pushing me to do cross-cultural ministry uh, with my church youth group. And because of my parents' intentionality and because they were deliberate in developing compassion within me, I grew up with a heart-level burden um, for people who were hurting, people who were marginalized, people who were experiencing injustice. And so all those experiences as a boy and as a high school student set a trajectory for my life as a young man. 
And in my late teens and early 20s, I became very involved in humanitarian aid work, both domestic and international. So by the time of my 21st birthday, I traveled to nearly 10 different countries, and in college I would round that out to an even 10. I, I participated in the distribution of tens of millions of dollars in pharmaceutical aid to victims of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. I had the opportunity of personally working with the United States Ambassador to Belarus on USAID uh, projects in the Republic of Belarus. I also delivered and distributed tens of millions of dollars in food to starving families in Africa. I took part in helping create an HIV AIDS awareness curriculum in the nation of Malawi. And so at this time in my life, while I was doing all these good works, very involved in humanitarian aid work, a theological shift started to take place within my mind and heart. I began to drift from the truth of the gospel that was instilled in me as a boy and started to put my faith in a theological framework of my own invention. And so two things started to happen. One, I began to trust in my good works of mercy as my means of justification before God. And how that played out was like this. I would come under the conviction of my sin, and instead of looking to Jesus as my means of justification before God, I would try and rationalize with God and say, God, I'm aware that I've sinned against you, but I've been saving babies and feeding starving people. Surely you're not going to count my sins against me. And as you know, my heart and mind were in error to think that way. The second thing that started to happen, because I was trusting in my good works to outweigh my sin against God, I found myself serving in the areas of mercy and justice, not for the glory of God or the good of humanity, but instead I was serving under the compulsion of an ulterior motive, namely my justification. Essentially, I was serving others for my own good. I was serving others so that I would escape the wrath of God for the sins I had committed against him. And consequently, my good works were no longer good. They had become selfish and self-seeking. Shortly after my 21st birthday as a freshman at Liberty University, to the praise of God's glorious graciousness, I remembered and returned to the gospel of Jesus Christ that my parents taught me as a boy. We are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Following my return to a right understanding of the gospel, I was freed to pursue good works from a pure heart and right motives that eventually served the glory of God and the good of others. This morning, we are going to focus our attention on the famous parable, the Good Samaritan. Oftentimes, this particular parable is preached as an imperative for Christians to go and do good works. However, as we will see, the parable of the Good Samaritan is actually not an imperative for the Christian life. It's not a command for Christians to obey. The parable is actually about our inability to obey God's law, and thus it shows us our need for Christ. The parable of the Good Samaritan and the verses surrounding it were recorded by the gospel author Luke for the purpose of driving home a larger theological theme. 
and that being our salvation from God's wrath and judgment, our justification is entirely dependent upon God's mercy and grace, not our good works. As we begin as a church to focus our attention on mercy and justice ministries in the month of January, I believe this text, Parable of the Good Samaritan, will serve us well. It will serve our church family well by bringing the gospel front and center, not allowing us to believe a theological framework of our own inventions. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson over the years has offered some very prudent words to Christians on how not to let the gospel slip from its rightful place of preeminence within our churches and our lives. And I have found one particular quote to be very insightful and even true of my own life. He says this, to lose the gospel, all we must do is assume the gospel. So to lose the gospel, for the gospel to leave its place of preeminence within our hearts, our minds, our lives, and our churches, all we need to do is just assume the gospel, not really learn it, hear it preached. And that is why it's so necessary and wise to daily preach the gospel to ourselves. It's the same reason why the Apostle Paul, when dealing with all the problems in Corinth, says to them, quote, let me bring to your attention that which I deliver to you as first importance. And then in chapter 15, he explains the gospel. It is my prayer that this text will affirm what we already know to be true about the gospel, and that is this. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus and not our own works. Having that truth affirmed in our hearts and minds, my prayer is that we as a church would be freed by the gospel to engage in ministries of mercy and justice, not seeking our own good or our own individual justification, but instead seeking the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. My prayer is essentially 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, that we, again as a church, would exercise love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So look with me at Luke chapter 10. Beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him in the test, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, 
I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Would you bow your head in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, as we have read your word, your very word, And as we look to understand it better, I ask now that your Holy Spirit would come and illuminate the truth of the gospel in our hearts and minds. I even ask for myself now in a plea of humility that this sermon would be a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit in a proclamation of the gospel. God, I pray that you would help us to see our need for Christ. And I pray that you would help us to see the necessity of Christ that you would help us see the work of Christ. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I've already said, the the parable of the Good Samaritan is not an imperative, but instead its purpose is to show our inability to keep God's moral law perfectly. You see, if we interpret the parable of the Good Samaritan as an imperative for us to obey, then the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is, is meaningless. I'll say that again. If we we interpret the parable as an imperative, then the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus becomes meaningless. And I say that because of the question that necessitates the telling of the parable at the end of verse 25. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? If the parable is a command to obey, then all we need to do in order to escape God's wrath against our sin is simply exercise good works of mercy and justice. This theological framework is also known as moralism, when your good works outweigh your bad works. Listen to a Facebook post that pastor and author Tim Keller posted two days before Christmas. He said, Moralism is essentially the idea that you can save yourself through your good works. And this makes Christmas unnecessary. Why would God need to become a human in order to live and die in our place if we can fulfill the requirements of righteousness ourselves? What Tim Keller is saying is this. Moralism makes Jesus meaningless. When you and I try to take our good works and outweigh our bad works we are trying to make Jesus meaningless. The context in which we find the parable of the Good Samaritan within the Gospel of Luke is part of a theological theme that the author is stressing to his original audience, and that is salvation from God's wrath is entirely dependent upon his grace and his mercy and not our good works. So let's see how that shapes out here. Look at verse 25. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Some commentators would like to call this man a seeker, but this man is not a seeker. And I say that confidently for two reasons. One, Luke purposely points out this man's motivation for asking the question, and that is to test Jesus. His question is not sincere. It's part of a plan to catch Jesus in the act of denying or breaking God's moral law. 
If you have any familiarity with the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is a common occurrence that Jesus faces when he interacts with religious leaders of the day. They're always trying to catch him breaking God's law. And so there's another place in Luke's narrative where he takes uh, account of this interaction. There's an incident where some Pharisees invite Jesus to a Sabbath dinner, and then they prop a sick man in the foyer for when Jesus arrives. Their plan was that Jesus would heal the man on a Sabbath so that they would be able to catch Jesus breaking the Sabbath. And if you don't know the end of the story, Jesus stays, heals the man, decides to eat dinner with them, and then goes on the rest of the evening rebuking and condemning the Pharisees for their plan to try and catch him breaking the law. The second reason I can say this man is not a seeker is because of the words of the Apostle Paul. When writing to the church in Rome, he clearly says, no one seeks for God. Listen to the apostle's words in Romans 3, 11. He says, no one is righteous, no not one, no one understands, and no one seeks for God. The reality is no one seeks for God because everyone, all humans, everyone, all of us, we are totally depraved. Meaning this, our minds, our will, our emotions, and our body have been corrupted by sin, rendering us, according to the testimony of Scripture, dead in our trespasses and sins, foolish, disobedient to God, slaves of various passions and pleasures, hateful toward God and hating one another, making us children of wrath. So I can say this man is not a seeker because no one seeks for God. And Luke clearly states the man's intentions to test Jesus. And what an arrogant endeavor to test Jesus. To try and manipulate the creator of the universe into doing something morally wrong. This man's arrogance is even evident in the way in which he addresses Jesus. He calls Jesus teacher. While this title does communicate a certain level of respect, it's only a mutual respect that two colleagues would have for one another. He, he himself is a, a lawyer, probably a, a better Uh, usage of of his title would be a judge. He interprets the law. We think of lawyers as those who are involved in civil lawsuits, uh, defense attorneys. So he's not a lawyer in that sense. He's, He's a lawyer in interpreting the law. What does the law say? How we should obey it. So he's a lawyer. He recognizes Jesus's teaching capabilities, but the title is a professional title. The man is a religious leader. He holds a public office that gives him a certain level of power and privilege within the community, and he addresses Jesus as a professional colleague, teacher. It's interesting to note that Luke, throughout his entire gospel, is careful to record for his audience the way in which people address Jesus and the way in which they approach Jesus. In chapter 4, Jesus performs miracles and exorcisms. Each time, the demons address Jesus as the Holy One of God and the Son of God. In chapter 5, a leper approaches Jesus asking to be healed. Luke is careful to recount for us that this man called Jesus Lord, fell on his face, and begged him to be healed. In chapter 7, the centurion who asked Jesus to heal his servant approached Jesus, calling him Lord. This high-ranking military official recognized the lordship of Jesus despite the cultural taboo 
of a Roman officer submitting his authority to a Jewish man. In chapter 8, a demon-possessed man calls Jesus the son of the Most High God. And at the end of the same chapter, a man by the name of Jairus asks Jesus to heal his dying daughter. Luke records the account this way. He says, and falling at Jesus' feet, Jairus implored him to come to his house. And on his way to Jairus' house, Jesus was touched by a woman seeking to be healed from an issue of bleeding. Luke tells us that she came trembling and falling down at the feet of Jesus. And then in chapter nine, Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is. And the apostle Peter goes on record as saying, you are the Christ of God. There is a stark contrast between the way in which the people I just mentioned and the way in which the lawyer in our text approached and addressed Jesus. The people that Luke records for us in chapters four through nine recognize their sinfulness, their brokenness, and their neediness. So they approach Jesus with reverence and awe, falling at his feast and addressing him as God. The religious leader in our text approaches Jesus confident in his moralism and self-righteousness. He approaches Jesus with arrogance and conceit and addresses the creator and sustainer of the universe as a colleague. What a stark contrast. This should cause us to ask of our own hearts, how am I approaching Jesus this morning? What posture is my heart in towards the creator and sustainer of the universe? Is it in reverence in all? Am I humbly submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Or is my heart proudly sitting in a seat of arrogance, confident in my own good works, This is a pertinent question to ask because, as we will see in a few verses, the outworking of Apostle Peter's words, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, will ring true in just a few verses. And at the end of verse 25, we have the question from the arrogant man that motivates Jesus telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the man's motives are arrogant, they're prideful, they're not sincere, but this is a legitimate question nonetheless. And perhaps you even have this question on your mind and on your heart this morning. How do I inherit eternal life? How do I escape the wrath of God? How am I justified for the sins that I've committed against God? And with this being a legitimate question, you would expect that in verse 26... Jesus would respond with something like, repent of your sin and believe in me. After all, all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they record Jesus' words, repent and believe, as almost a mantra to his early ministry. But instead, we have something very different. Look at verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? At first glance, this response of Jesus seems strange. Truthfully, it seems contradictory to everything Luke has recorded up until this point that Jesus has preached. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. In chapter 7, Jesus tells a woman, your faith has saved you. 
go in peace. In chapter nine, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And as I already noted, all of the gospel accounts record Jesus as preaching faith and repentance. So what's going on here? Why does Jesus make reference to the law? There's two reasons. One, the man, his vocation is to interpret the law. He's familiar with the law. Second reason is this. The Bible tells us that one of the uses of God's law is to show us our sinfulness. The law of God reveals the sinfulness of man. The law of God tells us about the holiness of God and the depravity of man. Here, Jesus draws this man's attention to the law for this very purpose, to expose his sinfulness. Bring your attention to verse 27. He says, And the man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The man's answer is accurate. This is exactly what God requires of us. Perfect, full, and complete devotion to God and complete love for our neighbors. The problem is, because of our sinfulness, no one loves God perfectly. And no one loves their neighbor perfectly. As the Apostle Paul said, no one seeks for God. None is righteous. And so, what God requires of us, we cannot do. No one is good. As I already shared about my own experiences, even when we do good works for what appears to be God's glory and the good of our neighbors, we are prone to do that selfishly and imperfectly. And yet, God requires perfect holiness. And he clearly says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. No one will taste eternal life. No one will escape the wrath of God without holiness. Our biggest problem as humans is that we are unholy people. And as sinful, unholy people, we rightly deserve God's justice. We rightly deserve God's judgment. Look at verse 28. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Again, this is an accurate theological statement. Perfect obedience to God's law will result in justification before God. But the problem is no one is righteous. At this point, the man should have humbly looked at Jesus and said, oh no, I am a sinner incapable of loving God and loving my neighbor perfectly. I am incapable have mercy on my soul. And Jesus probably would have responded with something to the effect of repent and believe. But instead, this man's arrogant and prideful heart keeps him from answering in such a way. Look at verse 29. It says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Luke implies that this man, looking at the moral law of God as a man looks at himself in the mirror, 
began to see his own inability to keep the law perfectly. And instead of being honest with himself and honest with Jesus, he tries to find a loophole to prove that he is not guilty. This man, being a religious leader and being an interpreter of the law, was undoubtedly exposed to enough rabbinical teaching about the law, he knew exactly what was meant by the term neighbor. This loophole question is really just a prideful outworking of his arrogant heart. Under the weight of his own conviction and guilt, he musters up one last attempt to justify himself. Really, he's recklessly just throwing stuff at the wall to see if it will stick. And what Jesus does next in response to this man's hardness of heart, in response to his pride and his arrogance, what Jesus does next is sobering. Look at the beginning of verse 30. Jesus replied. How did Jesus reply? In the form of a parable. Now you're probably thinking, a parable? It's really not all that sobering. What's so sobering about that? Well, in Luke chapter 8, Jesus teaches a group of people using the homiletical teaching device of parables. And then when questioned about the use of parables by his disciples, Jesus says to them in verse 10 of Luke chapter 8, To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Luke 8.10 has a parallel verse in, in Matthew 13, verses 10 through 15. Listen to the very words of Jesus. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and I would turn and I would heal them. When Jesus spoke to unbelievers in parables, it was not for their good, but for their condemnation. Commenting on Jesus' very words in chapter 8 of Luke and Matthew 13, pastor and Bible teacher John MacArthur states the following. He says, Many assume that Jesus told parables to make his teaching easy acceptable and comfortable in order to reach the widest possible audience. The reality is Jesus spoke in parables to unbelievers not to make the truth clear, but to hide it from them as judgment. The parables were symbols of our Lord's condemnation on those who had rejected his clear teaching. This is why I say it is sobering that Jesus replied to this man in the form of a parable. It's sobering because the man in his pride has already rejected the truth of the gospel. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is also why I said earlier that it is important for us to consider the posture of our own hearts towards Jesus. Scripture is filled with numerous commands to um, humble our hearts and not harden them toward God. 
As this man found out, what follows a prideful, hard heart is always God's judgment and condemnation. Again, Peter's words ring true. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, what does the parable mean? What truth is is Jesus hiding from this man's judgment? And what truth is he explaining to the disciples for their understanding? Look at verse 30 with me and follow along all the way to the end of verse 35. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set, on, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. What Jesus depicts the Samaritan man doing is, in fact, fulfillment of God's moral law. The Samaritan man doesn't just throw a couple bucks at the guy. Instead, in a true act of love, he cares for the man's wounds in a costly and compassionate manner, applying oil and wine. In love, the Samaritan man not only gives of his time and money and resources to the man's immediate care, but he also invests those same things to his long-term care. What the Samaritan man does is truly kind, compassionate, and loving toward his neighbor. And here's the question. And who has fulfilled the command to love their neighbor in such a way better than Jesus himself? Up until this point in the narrative, Luke has recorded numerous instances where Jesus supernaturally binds up the physical, mental, and emotional wounds of his neighbors. By the use of parable, Jesus has proven his ability to keep the law of God. Look at verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? In the context of the parable, the Samaritan fulfilled the law to love. But in the ultimate sense, the the Samaritan is pointing to Jesus. In the ultimate sense, Jesus has fulfilled the law to love perfectly. And here lies the hope of the gospel. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus came and lived a sinless life on our behalf. Jesus lived a completely obedient life in our place. Jesus did what this man could not do for himself. Jesus did what we cannot do for ourselves. So Jesus went to the cross sinless. He was the perfect spotless lamb the acceptable sacrifice. He was the perfect atonement. Because Jesus is sinless, the gospel is effective. The righteous was able to die for the righteous. And when we are united to Christ in faith, we are given Christ's righteousness. It's imputed to us. Because of Jesus' obedience to the law, the gospel 
is hopeful. Look at the man's answer in the beginning of verse 37. He says, the one who showed him mercy. Because Jesus has chosen to use a parable, the man is left in spiritual blindness. He misses the very point that Jesus has kept the law perfectly. Remember, what does Luke say at the beginning of this, of this text? He says, the man set out to test Jesus to see if he was morally good. And Jesus, by use of parable, has said, I have kept the law. Look again to the end of verse 37. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The command to go and do likewise is ultimately a command to go and obey God's moral law perfectly. And that, of course, is impossible. Jesus is again pointing to the man's inability to justify himself before God. He's pointing to the man's inability to answer the question, how do I receive eternal life? Jesus is pointing out our inability to justify ourselves before God. He's pointing out your inability, my inability to receive eternal life on our own. The parable of the Good Samaritan is taught by Jesus to show us our inability to keep God's law. And thus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is necessary. The parable of the Good Samaritan is taught by Jesus to teach us to cling to him alone as our justification before God. As the modern hymn says, Father, I can come to you and boast of deeds I've done. In my pride, I strive to earn the favor Christ has won. He alone pleads my acceptance, all my works aside. So I come with empty hands and I cling to Christ. Seeing our inability to keep God's law perfectly in our sinfulness, we must cling to the sinless Christ. And so, if we apply a right understanding of the gospel to our hearts and minds by acknowledging our sinfulness, confessing that sin, and, and turning away from our sin in repentance while turning to Christ in faith, then we will keep the gospel in its rightful place of preeminence in our lives. In 2017, in January, as we as a, a church begin to, to go and meet people's needs, preaching the gospel to ourselves will keep the gospel in its rightful place of preeminence. In conclusion, it is important that I say this. We are called by God to believe the gospel and obey his law. However, we are never to look at our obedience to the law as our justification. For that, for our justification, we must rest in the sinless Christ who lived and died and was buried and resurrected on our behalf. We rest in Jesus for our justification, but we strive to obey the law of God with all that we have, our mind, our strength, all that we have, we strive to obey the law of God for the sake of God's glory and the good of humanity. So, my charge to you this morning is this. Believe the gospel. 
That is my first charge. Believe the gospel. See Jesus as your means of justification before God for your sin. Cling to Christ this morning. Rest in Jesus. And then, as we have opportunity to go, to go minister to people, to go and do acts of mercy and justice, don't necessarily go like the Good Samaritan. Go like Jesus and obey the law of God. Go love your neighbor like Jesus loved his neighbors. And do that with love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for your word and I am grateful for the person of Jesus who did what I could not do for myself, who, who, who lived a perfect, sinless life in my place, satisfying the demands of the law, your demands. God, I ask that you would give me faith today and tomorrow, that you would give all of us faith to believe in the person of Jesus. I pray, God, that we would go knowing that we are justified by Jesus and not having to strive for our justification, but seeking to do mercy and justice for your glory and the good of others. Amen.